time began, before time began, Jesus was set aside as the ransom who would redeem people. Before time began, the cross was at the center of God's plan. Before he created anybody, before you and me ever sinned, God had a plan that would center around the the purposes of the cross. And then you get to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Remember, and the road to Emmaus. And Jesus opens up the Scriptures. And he says, the whole thing points to me. And he says there that it showed how he, the Son of Man, would be crucified, who would die and suffer many things. The cross is the key to understanding the Old Testament. So when you go to the Old Testament, you see themes like substitution. Something dies in the place of another. Why? Because it's all getting us ready for the cross. And then you look at Mark's gospel, which we're studying. Sixteen chapters. You know that six of those chapters are surrounding the week of Jesus' death. Now, if you were writing a biography you would then know that that week is pretty important, wouldn't you? Six of the chapters around one week. John, when he writes his biography of Jesus, he uses this phrase, the hour. Jesus says things like, my hour has not yet come. And then the cross comes right into view, and what does he say? My hour has arrived. In other words, the very purpose of his ministry was the cross and resurrection. And then you go, and maybe I'm laboring the point a little bit, but you go into the New Testament, and what do you find? The Apostle Paul can sum up his whole teaching by saying, we preach Christ crucified. Or he says to the Galatians, a church which is now in in Turkey area, that area, Miles away from Jerusalem, he says, before your very eyes, Christ was betrayed as crucified. They didn't see the resurrection. They didn't see the crucifixion. But they heard about it and saw it through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And then finally, bring our minds to heaven. What will we worship in heaven? We will worship a lamb, that's a title for Jesus, but not just any lamb, the lamb that was slain. Someone has one time said, the only man-made things in heaven are the scars in Jesus' hand and side. All eternity we will remember and celebrate the cross. So can you see how ridiculous it is that anyone would say that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not the crux of Christianity? Makes no sense. But there's always been objections to the cross, and we see it here in our passage. And it'll be helpful to you if you have the Bible open in the passage that Jules read, just a few verses. We're going to see three objections. The first is Peter's objection. Why was he so upset? Then we're going to see Satan's objection to the cross, his opposition to the cross. And then you'll also see at the end of the passage, it says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter is pointing to a fact that humankind has always struggled to accept the cross of Jesus Christ. They would love to define Christianity in a different way. So Peter's objection to the cross. Jesus has just asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? 
He said, you're the Christ. He got it right. But then immediately Jesus explains how this Christ is going to have to suffer and die and be handed over, and then he will rise from the dead. And Peter objects. It's amazing that, that Peter would have the, the guile to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him about this. This deeply offends Peter. Why? Because Peter's view was too narrow and his view was too shallow. His view was too narrow because he was only thinking of a savior who would come for his own people. You know, some people think that Christianity is a Western religion. It's anything but. Christianity began, I suppose we really go back to a man called Abram in the Old Testament. You know, that was the promise that God was going to do something through this man's descendants. And Abram was placed from a place called Ur, which is in modern Iraq, it's a Middle Eastern religion. And then Jesus comes because Abram moved to the promised land in Palestine, ancient Near East. It's an Asian religion. But it was never confined to any particular place. Abram's people were supposed to bless the people of the whole world. And when the Messiah comes, the promised king in the line of Abram comes, he's supposed to bless the people of all the world. And that's what we're testimony to. Look around. People from all over the world, followers of the Savior of the world. But Peter could only think in terms of his own people, the Jews. He wanted a Messiah who would come to his people and rescue and bring freedom to his land. And that was where he was too shallow. He was too narrow. He was too shallow. Because he's thinking only in terms of political freedom. But we know a freedom in Jesus that's far better than any political cause. Like, I love politics. I love, I'm the classic floating voter, to be honest. You know, I like to say to them, my vote is open to you, persuade me. I love politics. But I must admit that as a Christian, it's all a bit shallow, isn't it? You know, I, I can't read, like I, my patriot, well, I've got to be careful what I say here, but, you know, I love my country, but, but it's all a bit shallow. There's, some, there's things that are deeper. There's causes that are deeper. There's things to belong to that are deeper. You know, Jesus comes, and he's not here for one particular nation to to bring them political freedom. He's here to bring something so much deeper. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from a conscience that knows that we've done many things that are wrong. Freedom from God's judgment. Freedom into his family. Freedom that you'll never be condemned again and that you will be rescued because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Like, doesn't that put everything else into the perspective? It's so much deeper than what Peter was thinking when he thought, I would like a Messiah for my people, my country, to bring me political freedom. Think about it. You know, think about uh, the freedom that God gives. There have been people who have lived in countries that were tyrannical, under dictators, but they have known freedom because they've known God's forgiveness and his love. 
And there have been people who have lived in a so-called free country, if there is such a thing. And they have never known freedom because their conscience is not free. And they're not free with God. I read a little story about this. Um, this is one of those illustrations that I was so touched by, I kind of had to work it into a sermon. Um, but I was reading a book, and there was this guy called Alvis. Alvis. He was from uh, the former Soviet Union. And he had been in the Soviet Union when the Iron Curtain came down and they got political freedom. And he saw that there were churches, and, and particularly some sort of mainstream churches, that that needed pastors and were advertising for pastors because now all of a sudden they had political freedom and people could go to church again, but they hadn't trained pastors. So he went off and he did some training, but he didn't actually believe. He was skeptical to the whole thing. And he came to the feeding of the 5,000, and, you know, this man doesn't believe in miracles. So he, he finds a commentary by some sort of radical professor of the past who says, you know what happened there? Jesus' personality was so big that though the people were hungry, they felt full. I've heard other ones about that. I heard of others where the little boy shares, and, and then everyone gets inspired to share too. You know, and that's how it, and this was a popular theology of a particular time that's not so popular anymore. But this guy got up and he explained that to his congregation. They all seemed to like it. And then this little lady came out to him and she thanked him for his sermon. And this is what she said. Wasn't God so good to us in the gulags, the concentration prison camps of the Soviet Union? And he realized that here is a woman who believes Here's a woman who's being set free even though she was imprisoned. And he came to faith because he wanted what she had. That was Peter's objection. Then the second thing is Satan's objection. Uh, what a, a terrible rebuke that Peter receives from Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. What's it about? Well, you see, what happens is that in Peter's trying to persuade Jesus not to go to the cross. Jesus hears the plan of Satan through an unwitting man. An unwitting man is speaking. I suppose in some ways we could be like that, couldn't we? When we stir up division in the church, when we gossip and criticize and knock people, is there a chance that we're doing Satan's bidding for him, that we're speaking his words? But Satan uses the words of Peter to try to persuade Jesus not to go to the cross. And that's what Satan's being at the whole of the gospel. Go back to the temptations at the beginning of the gospel. Remember one of the temptations, worship me and I will give you glory in this world. And what's he really saying is, what about glory without the suffering? What about glory without the suffering? What about a route to glory and being seen to be the great person you are without the suffering? That's the way it works right throughout Mark's gospel. And now God is using unwittingly one of Jesus' own disciples to try and pull him away from the cross. And Jesus sees it. Now, here's the question. Why would Satan object to the cross so much? Well, I suppose it's quite obvious, isn't it? What happens if Jesus doesn't go to the cross? God's plan fails. God's Son proves not to be the adequate Savior. Think of Philippians chapter 2. Remember that beautiful hymn where it says, you know, 
because he humbled himself, became a man and went to a cross, then it says, therefore every knee will bow. In other words, it's because of what Jesus achieves on the cross that he becomes the exalted one that we praise. And what happens? What happens if he doesn't go to the cross? Jesus is not worth the praise of heaven. And heaven would be empty. Without the cross, no one's getting into heaven. No sins paid for. No people forgiven. An empty heaven. Satan objects to the cross. But you know, and I remember hearing this many years ago, a preacher saying this, Christianity without the cross is satanic. <laughs> it's a stark statement, isn't it? But if someone comes to you and says, you know, I just think of Christianity as a way of living. You know, I, like, I try to live out the Sermon of the Mount and try to do that without the Holy Spirit. If I try to live out the Sermon of the Mount, I, I take Jesus as a good moral teacher. You're hearing the words of Satan. I know that sounds sort of weird, but it's true. Christianity without the cross is exactly what Satan wants. And so when you hear someone say, well, I think Christianity is just a, a lifestyle following a good moral teacher, you're hearing a religion that was devised by Satan. And therefore, people who say that, good people, are enemies of the gospel. And then finally, third point. Finally, I suppose I should wait for the conclusion. I always get annoyed where preachers say finally and they're not there yet. But I once heard a preacher, I think, go on for about a, a 25 minutes after a finally. I felt that was a full sermon. And, and Caroline's going, yeah, okay, you don't need to explain that. But then look at that. Look at, look at the words. He says... He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, the things of man have always been against the cross. Why? Well, because the cross hurts our pride. That's why people react against the cross. The cross hurts our pride. I have this little uh, thing that I... I read in a book that I found very helpful. If someone says, what do we believe? It goes like this. My guilt is so serious that nothing other than the death of Jesus Christ can take it away. And that's exactly what God has done for me. But doesn't that hurt your pride? To realize that Jesus did not come, as he says, for good people, but for people who know they're bad people. That Jesus himself at times, you remember, he referred even to his own disciples as people who have a problem with evil. That their heart was wrong. And that hurts our pride. Wouldn't it be much easier to say, look, just turn up at church once a week and pray and try to be a nice person and that will do. Because you can do it. And the credit goes to you. But the cross hurts my pride. It humbles me, and therefore, it's difficult to take. But remember last week when we were looking at this two weeks ago, when Peter said, you are the Christ, Jesus said in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, blessed are you, because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father. 
Think back to the miracle that happens if you look back in this passage. There's a healing of blindness, and it comes in two stages. And it seems to be a parable for what's happening here. Peter has seen, that was the first stage, but he's still like that man. He, everything was blurry. He has seen that this is the Messiah, but he hasn't yet seen what sort of Messiah, cross-bearing Messiah, this is. It's only God who reveals these things to us. So if you are sitting here this morning and you can say the cross is good news to me, that I see that Jesus is the unique way to God, that the cross is good news to me because I am someone who has a heart that is not right and needs someone to forgive me and take my punishment. If you see that, do you see that you are blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed that to you? That has been revealed to you by God. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. And that's one of the reasons you can know that you're a Christian because you can see these things and they're good news to you because for the person who does not have the Holy Spirit within them, they're just bad news and they're offense. And and if you're still at the stage where you think, no, the cross is not good news, ask God to open your eyes and show you the beauty of this. But if you do see the beauty of this, remember, you have nothing to boast about, this was God. And this is your assurance. And now, finally, now, finally, the conclusion. I'm going to get in trouble with my daughter, which I've done before. But uh, and I'm looking at my her mother just to make sure that I'm. But it's not a bad one. We were on the weekend away, and we went swimming. And uh, there was a bunch of girls, some Chan and some of her friends, and uh, a bunch of boys that we didn't know uh, showed a particular degree of interest. And the girls were very good. They're all responsible, mature girls. And the guys said, "Who are you?" And they said, well, we're here on a a little trip with a Baptist church. And the boy said, what do Baptists believe? And I'll be honest, I don't care what Baptists believe. I only care what the Bible teaches. Baptist or any other Christian group, what does it matter? And Chan looked at me, I was in the water, and she said, what do we believe? Now, Chan's good. She's, she's, She's had a great summer with the Lord. And, you know, I've always been trying to prepare you for that moment again and again. I always feel inadequate at that moment. But what I tried to think about was this, and I think it is true. It's, It's inadequate, but it's true. I said, we are better, or no, sorry, we are no better than anybody else. We're no better than anybody else. One night in Castle Troy, a bunch of kids come in, and as they leave, having giggles the whole way, I felt that I needed to shout at them, We are not better than you. They need to know that. We're better than nobody else. We're only people. And then I said, we're better than nobody else. We're simply forgiven people. And we're forgiven because of the cross. Now, that's inadequate. They didn't go away, I think. But it's the starting point, isn't it? You are better, if you're a Christian, than nobody else. You must be humble. In fact, you should be more humble than anybody else because you alone have been given the freedom to look into your heart and see the worst in your heart and know it's covered and not be afraid of it. But you are forgiven. And you are forgiven because of the cross. And that's why it's good news. And that's where I want to finish. Being a Christian 
Because at the end of Colossians, Johnny spoke to us in Colossians. At the end of Colossians, it has one of those things that you live your life among people in such a way that they ask what you believe. But what sort of lifestyle causes people to see a difference? I think it's this, humble confidence. We live in a world with many humble people who have no confidence. They're just low self-esteem. And we live in a world with many confident people who are proud and arrogant and boastful. But the Christian should be humble and confident. Humble because I do not come to Jesus Christ with any goodness of my own, but depending entirely on his mercy. And because he has given me the freedom, the security to look into my heart and see the worst, I should be the most humble of people. But confident. Because didn't Jesus say in the cross, it is finished. That meant the price that he paid on the cross is sufficient because he is the infinite price. God the Son. He is greater than your sin, no matter how deep that sin is. And then you have perfect confidence because I am loved by a God who loves me, not because I'm good, but because he has covered my evil. We're going to go straight for coffee, but let's just take a couple of minutes to think about the cross. In silence, just think about the cross. What does it mean to you?